everything's okay. Julie's at home. She's a bit, bit sick, but uh, otherwise all is good. Uh, but yeah, I find it interesting that uh, today, uh, of all our messages in Solomon, is probably the most critical. Uh, trip to the hospital. Uh, my PowerPoint completely failed me this morning, by the way. There was, uh, this is a big passage, so the PowerPoint would have been really helpful. Uh, yeah, so I kind of feel like it's important that we stop and pray right now because I think there's some things that we need to hear. Dear God, we thank you that you are in control, that you are sovereign over all things, and that nothing in life takes you by surprise. But we do come and we come to your word now and we ask that you will speak. And I ask that you will speak, uh, that these thoughts will be the thoughts of heaven, divine, life-giving and true. Not mine, not manly, foolish ideas but things that amaze us and will carry us into eternity. And so, Father, I bring this all to you and ask that you would speak to us this morning. Be with us by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. I really wish I had the PowerPoint. There was some really good stuff in there. Um, We're looking at 1 Kings chapter 5 to 7. It's a big passage. Um... Who's had a chance to read it? Anyone? Some. It's a big passage. There's a lot in there. Um, Hopefully we can break it down a little bit and make some sense out of it. Um, Have your Bibles open there. Um, We're going to flick through it in a moment. But let let me ask you this question. If I walked into your house or your bedroom uh, right now, uh, what would I see? What would I see? If I walked into your house, if I walked into your room, what would I see? Would it be messy? Would it be clean? Uh, Maybe you call it organized chaos, as some like to call it. Uh, Maybe you've got decorations around the place. You've got posters and photos, a a calendar calendar from 10 years ago, uh, sticky notes uh, plastered over your wall. Uh, and, and I think if you pay attention, when you walk into someone's place, whether that's their house or their room, um, you can tell a lot about that person by the way that they've done that. Uh, let, me, let me just try and illustrate this. Uh, for those of you who have frequented uh, my place uh, in recent months or even over time, uh, what's something that you notice? What's something that you notice about my place? if you come a lot. It always changes. My living room has probably changed layout about five times in the past 18 months. Uh, I, I like change. I, 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 don't, I get bored. Uh, I don't like sitting on my feet, uh, sitting, on my, sitting around. Sitting, yeah, sitting on my feet, yeah. See, my brain's working right now. I, I, I like change. I like things moving. I like things changing. Uh, I also like things tidy, so if my house is not tidy, you know there's something wrong. Um, And as we come to this passage, we get a glimpse of that. As we look at the temple, we get a glimpse of what it is that God wants to show us of himself. 
Uh, and so we get to the centerpiece of Solomon's story. Because if you read through Kings, all the kings barely get a chapter. Some might get more. But Solomon gets 11 chapters. But what's more, out of those 11 chapters, four of them are concentrated on the temple. Solomon has inherited the throne from his father David. uh, And David's dream was to build this temple. It was David's dream. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 7. He wanted to build this temple, but instead God promises that one of his descendants will build the temple. A house for God's name. Now, after taking the throne, God appears to Solomon and offers him whatever he wants. And Solomon chooses to ask for wisdom to rule wisely. But on top of that, Solomon gives him not only wisdom, but wealth and honour. And so we, in the, in the last couple of chapters, we saw this wisdom displayed in his justice, his politics, his economics, and even his understanding of the natural sciences. And the big question that we've been asking through our trip with Solomon is, is this. Is Solomon the king God promised to David? Because God said that he will give him, give David a son, an ancestor who will... God will use to fulfill his promises. Is Solomon that king? But as if you've been with us, you'll know that there's been hints that maybe Solomon isn't this king. He isn't the king, God's king, the true king who will fulfill these promises. Uh, And you can read about these in Deuteronomy 17 and 2 Samuel 7. But here we are. Here we are and Solomon is about to build this grand temple. Uh, He's going to do what David dreamed of doing and he's going to build a house for God's name. Now before we get into this, let's just run through our passage so we know what we're looking at. Uh, So chapters 5 to 7, again, PowerPoint would have been amazing, but here we go anyway. So what happens at the beginning of chapter 5 is we have this kind of diplomatic communication. We have Uh, Hiram and Solomon communicating between each other. Hiram wants to reinforce the um, treaty that that he had with King David and uh, they want to renegotiate this. And in the process, Solomon negotiates uh, both men and resources for the temple. Uh, You move on to verses 13 onwards. uh, And then we get this passage where Solomon uh, conscripts forced workers. Uh, keep that in mind. Uh, he, he conscripts forced workers for the building of the temple. Uh, he's also got some foreign slaves in there as well, for good measure. Then we get to chapter 6, and it opens with this interesting line. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon reigned of, over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple. We get this kind of introductory time statement. Um, What's interesting there is the 480 years. And uh, in in the Jewish mind, uh, this is interesting because there's this number 12 in there. If you divide that by 12, you get 40 years. 40 years is roughly a generation, roughly. Uh, People argue over that. Uh, But 12 generations from the Exodus, from when God saved the Israelites 
Now the temple is being built. The people of Israel left Egypt with the promise of a land where God would be with them. And 480 years later, here they are with the temple, the house of God's name, being built. Okay? Uh, 12's, 12's a number of, that kind of depicts completion or perfection. Uh, so the time is right, in other words. Uh, then we get into the, the nitty-gritty of the temple. So verses 2 to 10, we get lengthy descriptions of the exterior of the temple, dimensions and descriptions of how everything comes together. Then you get this really weird interjection at verses 11, and thir- 11 to 13. So chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, you get this weird interjection. Now let me read it. The word of the Lord came to Solomon, as for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill them through you, the promise I gave to your father David. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. We'll come back to this later, but keep in mind you've got this massive dialogue, or not dialogue, uh, description of what the temple is going to be like. And right bang in the middle are these three verses. We're going to come back to that, but just keep that in mind. Uh, And then verses 14 to 30, you get the description of the interior of the temple. Again, dimensions, details of materials and even decorations uh, fill these verses. Uh, In verses 31 to 36, we move to the entryway. Again, dimensions, materials and decorations. And then finally, the temple is complete. We've not actually told anything about the building of the temple. We're just told that it's done. Verse 37 and 38. Again, we're given time details uh, when it's completed. And take note, it took seven years for the temple to be built, right? Because what happens, you get to chapter 7, it took Solomon 13 years to complete the construction of his palace. Again, we'll come back to that and talk about that a little bit more. Uh, But again, you've been talking about the temple all this time and then suddenly the writer jumps and starts talking about Solomon's palace. Uh, Now that's only 12 verses. Uh, Again, there's details, dimensions, materials. um, But... As you read that, though, there's this picture that you get that Solomon's palace is hugely larger than the temple itself. Right? If you actually take the time to read it, Solomon's palace is bigger than the temple. Again, keep that in mind. Now, to wrap this all up, we come back to the temple and we have verses 13 to 51 with uh, some summary verses at the end uh, where this is all the fittings, all the utensils, all the stuff that's going to get used in the temple. Um, and so there's all sorts of details there um, about the courtyard, this massive bronze pool, um, all these different things. Uh, so that's what we're looking at. There's a lot there. Uh, let's uh, get into this, break this down, and see what it is that we're meant to understand and learn from these passages. So if it isn't obvious enough, the temple is kind of a big deal. Right, the, the, the temple is a big deal. We've got three whole chapters given uh, to the building and preparation of the temple, uh, minus Solomon's palace. Um, but there's still another chapter to come next time where we look at the dedication of the temple itself. So the temple is a big deal. Right? Four out of the 11 chapters on Solomon focus on the temple itself. Uh, but there's a few things I want to highlight before we get onto the temple. Um, We've, we've seen in the last couple of weeks that there's, there's these little problems with Solomon. 
He's inherited the throne from David, but is he God's king? We, we, we see these little problems, uh, these little hints that maybe something's not quite right. Now, the reason that Israel has a king in the first place is because the people wanted it. Because originally the idea was that God would be their king. Not a physical human king, but God himself. But that wasn't good enough. The people wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted a king. And so God gives them a king. And we read about this in Second Samuel uh, chapter, uh, 1 Samuel sorry, uh, chapter 8, I believe, because I don't have my slides with me. Um, you don't have to flip there. Um, but when God finally gives them a king, he warns them through Samuel, this is what your king will do. And there's this one line in there. Uh, and, and Samuel's telling them what the king will do. And this is one of those things. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Why is that important? Because what has Solomon done? He's conscripted the Israelites to build the temple. He hasn't just gone, hey, volunteers, come and, come and sign up. No, he's conscripted people. He's forced them into building this temple. That's a problem. Right, God's warned them, this is what your king will do. Solomon comes, Solomon does it, and as we get to the end of the story, this will be one of the problems with Solomon. The people will grumble and complain, you put us through slavery. So that's, that's, that's one of the issues that we have here. Because if you remember our look, brief look at uh, Deuteronomy 17, the king was not meant to put himself above the others, his own people. Right? God's king was not meant to be greater or set himself above his own people. It's in Deuteronomy 17:20. Now the next issue is this question of Solomon's palace. Okay, we mentioned that it took seven years to build uh, the temple and it took 13 years to build Solomon's palace. And as I said, the palace is larger than the temple. So what does that mean? Does it mean that Solomon put more effort into building his own house, his own palace, than he did the temple? Not necessarily. There's a bit more going on here. When you read a book, when you read a story or, or anything of that sort, let's, let's say you, you're reading a chemistry textbook. I'm just throwing this one out there. Let, let's just say we're reading a chemistry textbook here. If you spend three chapters talking about chemical reactions and kind of in between is this kind of box with an abstract talking about some wild theory that some guy has. What do you think the point of those three chapters is? The chemical reactions. And the, the writer here wants us to understand that, yes, Solomon's palace is grand. It is big. And yes, it took him longer to build whether rightly or wrongly, it might have just been logistics. The point is, Solomon's verses takes about 12 verses in our Bibles. But three times as much space is taken on the temple. When we read this, the writer wants us to understand that the temple is the focus here, not the palace. It's just there to kind of decorate and go, yeah, here's the temple, and here's something that you might go, oh yeah, that's nice too, but no, here's the focus. Here's the attention that needs to be kept. It's the temple. So, 
So what is the big deal about the temple? What's, what's all the fuss about? Because we come to church, we've got this building. What, what's the fuss? What's the point of it all? Well, I think to understand this, we need to go back a little bit. Uh, the whole point is that the temple is meant to be God's house. It's meant to be the place where God meets with his people. And this actually begins all the way back in Genesis. Because if you read it carefully, the Garden of Eden is where God meets with people. There's this one line, and it's not in a positive context, but it's there. The Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. God comes down from heaven, from his throne, into this garden to meet with Adam and Eve, to walk with people. Just, just get your head around that for a second. That in this place that God has made, he would come and walk with people. Uh, there was a bit of fuss lately about um, the Duchess of Cambridge. No, Catherine. About her being involved in the Chelsea, uh, the, the, the flower show, the Chelsea flower show, which is the big international flower show. But just imagine being invited to go along with Princess Catherine and walk through the garden that she'd set up. Just, just imagine that. You, you get an invitation one day. It's like, hey, come along and check out my garden. Or, or even the Queen's Palace and just to walk through the gardens with her. We're like, yeah, what, whatever. It's not a big deal. But in the Garden of Eden, you have the God of Heaven come down and walk with man. Walk with, with his people. And so that's where it all begins. We know, if, if you know the story, it all goes wrong and it all goes pear-shaped. So what does God do? Well, as we mentioned earlier, he saves the people of Israel from Egypt and brings them out, and he wants to take them to the promised land. And in the process of doing that, he gives the people instructions to build a tent or a tabernacle. Uh, and there's again, there's massive descriptions about this building. Uh, but it's a portable tent that's meant to go with them until they get to the promised land. And it is there so that the people can meet with God. It's also called the tent of meeting. So until the building of this temple, the tabernacle was where God met with his people. It's where God, where people could come and meet with God. And this is the heart of God's promise to David, that God will provide a place for his people so that they can have a home and no longer be disturbed. They can have peace and rest. That's the heart of God's promise. Not just to David, but to the Israelites, to Abraham. Every promise he has made is about giving people a place to call home and find rest. And if you notice, the temple is called a house for God's name. Right, so the tabernacle was the place before the temple where God would meet and now the temple is here to replace it where God would come and he would meet with his people. So that's the point that this temple was to be a place where God could meet with people. It's his house. It's not just a temple. It's not some religious structure. It is his house. It is where people come to meet with him. Or if you want, it's his palace where you come to meet the King of Kings. Either way, it is a place 
where God meets with people. Now the other big thing about this passage and the thing that makes it so hard for most people to read is all the dimensions, all the materials and all the details. Now keep in mind, there is no Wikipedia, there's no Flickr, there's no Instagram to share photos or details. Again, slides would have been helpful here. So what do they use? They use words. Right? Any time that you see massive chunks of scripture that are just details, it's because there's a picture that's being painted. Not detail, a picture that we're meant to see. And just like walking into your room might tell you a lot about you, or maybe you're just having a bad day, walking into the temple is meant to tell us something of God. Let me try, let me try and paint a picture. Again, photos would have been good. Uh, close your eyes if you're one of those visualization type people. Let me try and paint this picture, okay? You walk up to this temple. You walk into this courtyard and it is surrounded by beautiful stones and cedar beams, wooden beams that surround this courtyard. And as you walk through, you come up to two bronze pillars shining brightly in the day of the sun. They're eight metres tall, they're about five metres round. And at the top, you, you look at the top of these pillars and they're decorated with lily flowers. And as you make your way down the pillars, 200 pomegranates surround the columns. You move on and there's this bronze basin, massive, about four and a half metres wide, just over two metres tall, and it holds about 44,000 litres of water. It's not just the basin though, it's sitting on top of 12 bulls, three each facing north, south, east and west. Then you begin to walk up to, to uh, walk up to the temple and the walls of the temple as you make your way around are covered in angels, palm trees and flowers. As you come up to the front door, it's made out of olive wood. It's this beautiful olive wood that's hidden, covered in gold. Again, this door is covered with images of angels, palm trees and flowers. You walk through these grand doors, you walk to the the first sanctuary of the temple, and you, you get this smell. You get this smell of cedar and pine filling your nostrils. The floors are laid with pine, the walls are panelled with cedar. And again, you, you, you look and the walls are covered with flowers and different fruits, palm trees and more flowers. And parts of the temple are all covered in gold. Then you move to the inner sanctuary, a smaller room, a square room. And along its walls, end to end, are angels with wings about two metres wide, stretching the wall. Again, carved from wood and covered in gold. That's the temple. When you walk in, the experience is meant to overwhelm you. The gold, the bronze, it reflects light and dazzles you. And what does it point to? Two things. I'm only going to talk about one, but it points to two things. It points back to the Garden of Eden. The abundance, the richness, the symbolism points back to the Garden of Eden. The fruit, the flowers, the palm trees. 
And even the angel, the angel serves as a warning as you come to God. The angel is God's guardian, is the gatekeeper. Because what happens when Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, God puts an angel there to stop anyone coming back to take from the tree of life. As you read this, you're meant to get this picture that's meant to dazzle you and remind you of paradise. And it is here that God wants to meet with his people. Back in the garden, as he walked with people, God comes down to his tabernacle, his temple, to meet again with his people. But that's not the end of the story. Because the Garden of Eden didn't last. And this temple doesn't last. It was 480 years of waiting to build this temple. It barely lasts 400 before it's destroyed. But here's the thing. This detail of time reminds us of a very important principle. That God's promises are not like the promises we make. Because God's promise is true and will stand the test of time. God is not some earthly parent that makes a promise of a treat to finish off a shopping trip. But this is God who promises I'll be there with you. He's not like an earthly parent who gets distracted by the busyness of life and fails to keep our promise. And God's ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah himself writes, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Apostle Peter writes, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So these 480 years of waiting remind us that God will keep his promise. God invests in the long term, not for overnight success, but eternal rewards, eternal dividends. God's not slow in keeping his promises. I don't know what's happening in life. I don't know what's going on. But God's promises are true and they will hold true. But they're just on a slightly different time scale to ours. It's got a slightly different perspective. Now as I mentioned, right in the middle of building this temple is, is this interjection of God speaking to Solomon. So chapter 6, verses 11. If you've got it there, have a look. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. And listen to this. right? As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. God's promise to the people of Israel was unconditional. The promise he makes to Abraham, to Moses and to the people of Israel and even to David was unconditional. God will 
provide a place for his people and he will give them rest. That is unconditional. But right here, we get a condition given to Solomon. Not to the people of Israel, to Solomon. What is that? If you obey me, I will use you to keep my promise to David and the people of Israel. If you keep my commandments, I will keep my promise to David and the Israelites. I don't know about you, but that's massive. That's huge. The burden of God's promise for an entire nation and people is on one person. Do you notice that? The entire promise of God rests on Solomon's obedience. Not the people of Israel. That's a different story. But here, God says to Solomon, you are the condition on whether I keep this promise here and now. That is huge. I don't know about you, but that's massive. I would not want to be in Solomon's position. My obedience fulfills the promise of God to a whole nation. That's ridiculous. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't live up to that. Neither does Solomon. Solomon can't live up to that expectation. We've already seen the slip-ups in Solomon's life and even just in these passages here. God's not, Solomon isn't God's king. He's not the true king. Despite his wisdom and achievements, he isn't the one that God will choose and use to fulfill his promise to David and his people. Now, spoiler alert. God's promise to live and dwell with his people doesn't end with the temple. I mentioned earlier that it barely lasts 400 years. After that, a second temple would be built 70 years later. Uh, You might remember that from Ezra. Uh, King Cyrus, king of Persia, would build, or start building the second temple. Um, But even that temple lasts almost 600 years and it was destroyed in 70 CE. See, people pin their hopes on things they can see and touch. And the people of Israel pin their hopes on the physical building of the temple. The problem is that there wasn't a single king who could live up to God's expectation of perfect obedience to keep that promise. That is until one man. Jesus. Jesus, a descendant of David, is king. He is the true king. He is God's king. And he is the one that God uses to fulfill his promise to David. Where Solomon wasn't able, Jesus is perfectly able to follow God's decrees, observe his laws and keep his commands and obey them. In Jesus, we find a king where we can pin our hopes because God will keep his promise through Jesus and he will provide a place for his people and he will give them a place to call home and find rest. See, Jesus is the king who will obey perfectly and not fail. 
But it doesn't just end there because it was interesting because the other day I had one of the kids ask me, why did Jesus come when he did? And I didn't really have a good answer for him, to be perfectly honest. I had a really bad answer. But as I read through this passage, as I wrestled with this, Jesus doesn't just appear at some random time in history. Yes, there's all social, political stuff going on, but there's an important point as well. The second temple was still around. The temple still existed when Jesus was around. And that's important because the temple actually comes into play with Jesus. Jesus was there before it was destroyed. And you might know this story where Jesus walks into the temple and he sees this marketplace and people selling and exchanging money and he gets angry. That's probably... If you ever act out any passage of scripture, that's an amazing one to do. But Jesus gets angry, he's overturning tables, he's driving out animals. And then he says this at the end of it all. John 2.19, he says this, Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple. The hope of the nation. And I will build it again in three days. And even in those words, Jesus hints that there is something greater than the temple, than a building, than a physical house. Later on, Jesus is teaching a parable and he quotes the words of Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. And what is this stone? If If you've read through, you know that this stone is Jesus. Not only is Jesus king, but he is a stone, a cornerstone, the foundation stone of what God is going to do. He is rejected by the Jewish people, his own people who built the temple. He's rejected by the people today who he created. But he, this stone, rejected stone, becomes the cornerstone for a new house for the name of God. Peter uses the same quote when he's uh, dealing with some Jewish leaders in Acts 4. But then he says this afterwards, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind but which we must be saved. Jesus becomes this house where people can meet God. Now the Bible takes this further. The the Apostle Paul writes that when we give ourselves to Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, we ourselves become part of this house, this holy temple where God dwells by his spirit. Ephesians 2.19 on. The Apostle Peter says something similar where he paints Christians as living stones being built up into a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2. That's a message for another day. But what's going on is there's this progression as the failed project of the Garden of Eden where God wants to meet with people and walk with people moves from there to the tabernacle, to the temple, to Jesus and then to us. It doesn't finish there. But that's where we are right now. Where Jesus becomes the foundation where people can meet with God. The place where... God will dwell where he will live and people can meet with him. And how is that? 
Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And he points forward to his own death and resurrection. He points forward and identifies himself as the temple, the house of God. And it will be destroyed on the cross. His body will be destroyed on the cross. But then he raises it again in three days. And his promise, God's promise to David, that one of his descendants will build him a house where his name dwells is found in Jesus. And in Jesus we find a place to call home and to find rest. And, and, and in a couple of weeks we're going to start looking at John and one of the big things in John is Jesus saying over and over again, remain in me. Remain in me. And Jesus invites us into this amazing relationship and spiritual dynamic where he is the temple, where he is the house of God, where we can meet with God, where we can hear from God, where we can talk with God. Jesus becomes the place. Jesus is the king. He's God's king, the true king, who is able to fully obey God's commands. And in Jesus, God then fulfills his promise. Remember that God's promise isn't premised on the obedience of people, but on God's king. Do you you understand what that means for you and I? The condition of God's promise is not based on your obedience, but on the obedience of God's king. God's keeping of his promise isn't premised on how good you are, how obedient you are, what abilities you have, what, what efforts you make, not even your faith. God's promise is premised and conditioned on the obedience of his king. It rests totally on Jesus. Nothing you do will change whether or not God keeps his promise. Do you understand that? Nothing you do will change that. Because Jesus perfectly obeys all that God commands. And that's the condition. Not you, not me, not what we do or what we bring to the table. It's all what Jesus does. And we call that grace. We call it amazing grace. Just, just imagine that you, you walk into school and you suddenly get a perfect report card because your dad's the principal. Or you walk into your first day of a new job and they go, oh, hey, head to the board meeting. You're going to chair the board of directors today because your uncle's the founder. And we hear those things and we're like, bow, that's not fair. You hear stories of like that in the world around you, you're like, that's just not fair. How does that even work? Because we live in a world that is based on merit and achievement. And when people manipulate the relationships they have to gain success, we cry foul. But that's grace. Grace is that you have a king 
in Jesus, who has access to the high king of heaven, God himself, and he says, life is yours. Freedom is yours. Because I'm perfect. I can do it all. You don't worry about the details. You can flop at your job. You can flunk school if you want. But in Jesus, you have a free pass to life. And we call that grace. How does that change each and every day? How does that change the nitty-gritty of life? And I want to suggest three things. There's, there's a ton, but I want to suggest three. Hope. Hope in Jesus. Secondly, remain in Jesus. But thirdly, develop an eternal perspective on life. Let me, let me break those three down. What does it practically mean to hope in Jesus? Practically, it means that when you wake up in the morning... The anxieties and stresses of the world, you're free from them. You don't need to let them take hold of you and stress you out as you go through your day. Because your hope is not in your grades. Your hope is not in the position or pay at work. Your hope is not in your bank account's balance. It's not even your physical health, your circle of friends, the behavior of your kids, the worldly success of your kids your knowledge, whether that's worldly or even spiritual, or anything else that you might hope in, that might fail, that might break, that might fall over at a moment's notice. The only hope that gives you full assurance is Jesus. So when you wake up and you go about your day as you're faced with challenges, when you're faced with those stresses and worries, As you turn to Jesus, you are freed from them. You're not freed by achievement. You're you're freed from achievement and success and needing to pursue those things to have some kind of meaning or significance in life. Now, there's nothing wrong in those things necessarily, but it's when they become your hope, when they become your God when they become your source of peace and security. That's when it all goes wrong. Those are all good things that we can enjoy. And yes, we can succeed in life. There's nothing wrong with that. God gave Solomon wealth and honour and success. There's nothing wrong in those things. But it's what they hold in your life. Are they your peace and security? And so... In Jesus, we can turn to him and say, I struggle with this. And Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Secondly, remain in Jesus. Uh, John quotes Jesus' teaching about this in John uh, 14, I believe it is. Um, But Jesus, remaining and hoping in Jesus doesn't mean that we just keep living the way that we do. Uh, Yes, Jesus' obedience is the condition for God's promise. But that, that doesn't mean that we just keep going the way we are. Let me try and illustrate that. When you see someone who is wealthy, who who has money, 
and they just don't look after the things that they have. You know, they, they get a new phone every year and they just toss the old one out. They don't even recycle it. They don't even pass it on to someone. They just, you know, just chuck it in the bin. You know, they, they buy an outfit and they wear it once and stays in the cupboard and just fills up space. You see those things. How do you react? Because most of you don't fit in that box. How do you, how do you respond when you, you see that? One of the things that frustrates me is when people kind of just leave half a plate of food uh, at a restaurant. They, they order this plate of food and there's like half a plate still there. It just oh, it grates me. Um, but see, that's the thing about grace. Right? You've been given this grace and it's been given to you freely. But it doesn't mean that it's worthless. This grace that you have been given is not worthless. It cost the life of Jesus. It was the shedding of his blood and the giving of his life that gave you that free grace. Just because someone gives you a one carat diamond ring doesn't make it worthless if it was given to you freely. That doesn't make it worthless. And grace is given to you freely at a cost. And the question is, are you going to Treat it like it's worthless. You're going to treat it like it's something worthwhile, something worth keeping. So remain in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, Jesus paints this picture that remaining in Jesus is like being part of a vine. There's pruning involved. The bad parts get snipped off and the good parts are nurtured to grow more. Why? So that the vine will bear fruit. And when... To remain in Jesus then is to grow and to bear fruit. What is that fruit? The fruit of remaining in Jesus is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians, oops, going the wrong way. Uh, Galatians chapter 2. My brain's not working today. Thank you, 5.22, there we go. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. See, the Christian life is not about reading your Bible, praying, coming to church, and doing any of those things. That is not what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is about being in Jesus, remaining in Jesus and bearing fruit. What is that fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. You want a goal for your Christian life. If you're one of those checklist people, this is your checklist. right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. You come to me when you've finished that checklist. And we'll move on to the next thing. That is lifelong. Pursuing Jesus. That is lifelong, not doing, but being and remaining in Jesus. The only way that this fruit bears any fruit in our lives is when we are in Jesus. When we allow him to shape how we think, what we do, what we say, and everything else around life. This is the fruit that will come from it. And so our hope is 
found as we remain in Jesus. Lastly, having an eternal perspective on life. Because the thing about the temple and as you go through the Old Testament particularly is that God is working bit by bit and he doesn't rush. He never rushes through. I think that's one of the reasons the Old Testament is so long so that we're like, God, when are you going to do this? Right? God, God's not in a rush. He's got his time. And one of the things about trusting and remaining in Jesus is, is that it requires a long-term perspective. If we're looking for change tomorrow, you won't find it here. Yes, I know we beat ourselves up over it. We're like, I want to change. I want to be different. I want to grow. I want that now. But Jesus says, no. Let me work in you. It takes time. And so our hope and remaining in Jesus, listen to this, our hope and remaining in Jesus is temporal. It is not eternal. Why do I say that? Because there is a day when we will not be in Jesus, but that we will be with Jesus. Right now we dwell and remain in Jesus spiritually. But there is a day when there will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new body. And that body will not dwell in Jesus, but will dwell with Jesus. You will walk with him side by side. Just as God intended in the Garden of Eden. And so yes, we'll still be in Jesus in spirit in that day. But he will be there right with you, side by side. And so when we think about our struggles and our challenges in life, we need a long-term eternal perspective. Because for this time, we are dealing with a temporal and spiritual reality. But there is a day that is coming when we will walk side by side with Jesus. Just get your head around that. As great as it is to have Jesus and to have his spirit, there's something better waiting for us. And that's what we live for. And as you go through each day, put things in perspective. A little while ago, I I encouraged people to do a a kind of a review, a spiritual faith review of just your walk with God and how you've gone. There's still a long way to go. But you're not stuck in one place. You're always moving and walking with Him. If you're Remaining in Jesus, you are growing. It just takes time. Sometimes that's painful. Sometimes it hurts. There's pruning involved. There's, there's cutting up and there's nurturing involved. And that takes time. No tree grows overnight. So keep an eternal perspective. As you get up in the morning and you're just faced with all sorts of circumstances, and you just struggle to see the way through. Don't just look at that, look ahead. Look into eternity and look for the day when these things will be no more. And you get to be with God, not just in Jesus, but with Jesus in eternity. Let me finish with these words. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in you we find a house where we can meet with God. We thank you that not only do we find a house, but we find you sitting on God's throne because you are the king who is obedient and faithful and true. And because of that, God's promises to us are fulfilled. And so help us to to continue to remain in you and hope in you and not in the things of this world. But also help us to look forward to that day when we are not simply with you in spirit, but with you in person. Help us together as we walk to encourage and remind each other of this truth, this great truth. And help us as we wait for that day, not to be discouraged or defeated, but to find hope and freedom in Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.